This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, High Theory podcast listeners, and welcome to the first episode of the High Theory in STEM series. My name is Nathan Kim, and I'll be your host today. In case you haven't met me yet, I'm a student at Yale University majoring in data science and ethnic studies. And today I'm joined by Erin McElroy, Aaron is a co-founder at the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, an assistant professor in American Studies at UT Austin, and one of my inspirations as a fearless critiquer, practitioner, um, and creator. So welcome, Erin. Yeah, it's so great to, to be here and to be able to talk about this with you. To start us off, Erin, could you tell us about how the housing crisis in the San Francisco Bay Area and Silicon Valley, about which you have written ex- quite extensively, um, about how this housing crisis developed and how the political situation evolved? Yeah, I mean, so Silicon Valley has changed in many, many different ways since it emerged as a, a concept. I and mean, interestingly, it first emerged during the Cold War. Um, prior, it was considered this orchard capital. There are many different histories that we can look at in terms of its constitution, going back to Spanish colonization and the formation of missionaries to you know, racialized exploitative labor when it was this orchard capital. And you know, many of these exploitative practices continued into the Cold War when Silicon Valley, very much about it by Stanford, became the sort of hub of producing technologies to about U.S. empire. And then, of course, um, that changed dramatically with the cessation of the Cold War. And, you know, scholars like Richard Walker and Margaret O'Mara have detailed this. And like, it became much more of this epicenter of consumeristic technological production. Of course, it still has still very much a military project in a lot of ways to foster capitalism with the cessation of the Cold War. You know, things like personal computers and the Internet, all of these became ways for Silicon Valley to continue and so we see the dot-com boom kind of emerging in this context, which led to this massive gentrification crisis in, in the region, including in San Francisco. Then with this sort of new tech boom 2.0 that emerged in the aftermath of the foreclosure crisis, we're seeing this once again. 
and you know, Silicon Valley imaginaries really seeping even further into spaces like San Francisco, where you know, Airbnb and Uber and Twitter, you know, formed um, in, in the sort of beginnings of this tech boom 2.0 era. We can talk a lot about ways that um, Silicon Valley, as this sort of imaginative concept, immense real estate speculation and turns or helps sort of transform the region into a wider, wealthier techno capitalist hub. But then at the same time, there are new technologies and, and products that are being pushed out of Silicon Valley that landlords and property managers themselves mobilize to sort of advance the project of private property and the exploitation of tenants. And so a lot of what I've been looking at recently is sort of how Catherine McKittrick writes that the land grab precedes the data grab, but really the sort of a lot to think about in terms of how data grabbing and land grabbing go hand in hand. Maybe I'll, I'll stop there for a second. Yeah, thank you so much. Could you talk a little bit more about the tools that landlords are developing to perhaps in some ways make life worth for tenants or how the tenants' lives might have been changed by all these developments? Yeah, sure. So there's this booming industry um, that is now known as prop tech or the property technology industry. Um, the term prop tech didn't really emerge until after the foreclosure crisis, during which big Wall Street investment companies Blackstone and Invitation Homes, um, you know, bought thousands of properties across that had been, uh, for the most part, racistly foreclosed upon during the foreclosure crisis. So uh, former single-family homes were bought and then converted into single-family rentals managed and owned by these, these really large investment companies who needed new technologies to sort of manage properties at scale. Um, and so this, you know, is a big transformation Um across the U.S. and even globally, uh, you know, Blackstone owns, is, is the biggest landlord across the world right now. Um, but so, so we, we saw this really, this push for new technologies and new technological solutions for landlordism and property management really starting around 2012 or so. And you can see a big uptick in, in terms of venture capital and you know, pouring into this emerging industry around then. You know, so all the, the and there was this company in New York called Metaprop that, plans to coin the term crop tech right around this, this time. But the industry itself predates this moment, if you want to think about tenant screening, which emerged in 1975 in California, actually, with this one company called UD Registry. And it's now this nine out of 10 landlords use some sort of tenant screening service across the country. There are over 2,000 known tenant screening companies, but probably many more that are unknown because it's not a regulated industry. Tenant screening today, what it does is it collates uh, addiction data with criminal record data with credit rating data to essentially blacklist tenants who are already targeted by systemic inequities and the carceral state and, and prior eviction histories from being able to secure housing in the future. So that, that started in the mid-70s. Um, it experiences huge boom after 9-11 through sort of war on terror rhetoric particularly in New York City, and with new, you know, dot-com boom technologies and just digital advancements, and then it's experienced um, other booms since then. Today, various algorithms and machine learning goes into making it what it is. And of course, during COVID, we've seen companies come out of the woodwork claiming that, you know, landlords should you know, basically snitch on tenants that can't pay rent due to the housing precarity that the, the pandemic brought on, and that basically these companies claim that they will collect this data and then make it useful to future landlords to basically 
make sure that quote unquote good tenants you know, move into their places so that they can capitalize. But that that's just tenant screening, but that's just to say that that started before the formal prop tech industry began. But yet, it's still a form of what we now call prop tech. I would also say that most tenants have never heard of the term prop tech. It's uh, you know it's real estate industry jargon, and although most tenants are subjected to it, they wouldn't call it prop tech. And so, a couple years back, in a series of workshops with other housing groups, we came up with the term landlord tech after trying out a bunch of terms and just kind of realized that that actually made a lot more sense to tenants um, than prop tech. So we started calling it landlord tech. And we have this this website, Landlord Tech Watch, where we have been trying to sort of come up with various uh, categories and essentially with the nomenclature for what landlord tech is. And of course, it's, it's many, many things. Um, we sort of divided it into two general categories, one um, comprising speculative technologies that landlords and real estate, the real estate industry uses to basically digitize the property accumulation process. And then the other major category um, is that of surveillance. And so that would include tenant screening, but also a, a range of other very invasive systems that, that landlords and property managers use. And I think the one that I've been spending the most time studying are biometric and facial recognition cameras that landlords are deploying, mostly in low-income and affordable housing units. I've been particularly looking at this in New York City, where landlords will install these systems um, under the auspices of creating safety, but most tenants say that it actually makes them feel a lot less safe and understand it as a very material way in which um, the prison industrial complex merges with the sort of real estate industrial complex, if you want to call it that to about cycles of gentrification and personality. Yeah, the term landlord tech, it really leaves the enemy more than prop tech does. In your article, Property as Technology, I noticed that your main attack point or insights are not just focused on dispossession, but on the process of racial dispossession. Um, for example, you talk about the anti-blackness of the tech 2.0 urbanism. You say property itself has long served as a technology of racial dispossession, constituting a palimpsest for the contemporary gentrifying moment. And I can imagine that that's also implicated in the actual technology deployment of facial recognition. Could you comment a little bit about that and how these technologies are profoundly racial? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was thinking about the analytic property as technology, um, very much inspired by work um, by scholars like Wendy Chung and Bud Coleman, who have theorized race and as technology. Um, and also, you know, um, Rohab Benjamin and also Neva Tomasowski and Kumiti Pura have, have done work um, around this idea. But yeah, I was thinking about how property itself has served as a technology of racial dispossession since really the advent of private property. And yeah, if we think back to the very formation of landlordism in feudal Europe, which is also where Cedric Robinson roots racial capitalism's origins. In a sense, we can think about the ways that the very notion of property serving us as a means of exclusion and dispossession. In other work that I've done in Romania, I've been interested in how the formation of private property, again, in feudal Europe, has disproportionately, and when it first became a thing, um, very much disproportionately impacted Roma communities. And um, But it, all about is to say, even in the U.S., we can think of Simone Brown's work, for instance, and she looks at how early policing practices were, were very much intended to catch people who kind of violated the um, authority of private property and in this moment, private property also con- constituting those who were enslaved. 
and you can't think about also, you know, the settler colonial histories of, of private property in the U.S. and just the ways in which very intentionally um, those who were given voting rights were, were also those who were, you know, given the right to own property stolen from Native peoples and on which enslaved people labored who were considered property. So it, all of these things, I think, um, as, as so many scholars of racial capitalism and also U.S. empire and settler colonialism have done so much work on, you know, are um, crucial in understanding the property present. And so, um, yeah, in that article, I was very much invested in avoiding, I would say, sort of a techno-fetishism of only looking at technologies of the present and understanding concepts such as surveillance or data, and rather looking at this much older history of property and, and surveillance. So you talked about where the notions of property came from. Can you comment a little bit about how you think they might develop further in the future or where all this is going? What future technologies might be invented or where the next battles will take place? I mean, I think that if we look at some of the trends that we're seeing now and we try to speculate upon where they're, they're going to go, there's social reproduction is taking place. So we can also look at the past and we can look at the various, if we want to say, racial capitalist trends that are, are being socially reproduced through property. We can imagine where they might go in the future. but there is in critical technology spaces so much work looking, you know, at algorithmic biases and, and facial recognition and data grabbing and just these very intensive methods of biometric surveillance and control. There are a few companies right now that actually sell products to landlords so that they can mandate that tenants that landlords get their tenants' dogs DNA tested. And so then it, you know, basically dog shit is found on a particular property, the landlord can test it and then find that tenant or evict that tenant. So, you know, animals have become um, brought into the fold of biometric landlord tech, which is quite ridiculous and disturbing. So, yeah, I think we can just let our <laughs> speculative future guide us in thinking of other areas that might end up getting enfolded into this space. But I would say that power dynamics don't change. It's just different forms of data become propertized. So a lot of this work, you, you don't just tackle in terms of academic articles, but through organizing through groups like the Anti-Eviction Mag Project. Could you talk a little about your time with the Anti-Eviction Mag Project, how you got started, and how maybe that has interplayed with your academic career? Yeah, so I helped start the Mag Project back in 2013 in San Francisco. At that time, I was not in academia. I was, it was before I started the PhD program, but I, I began in 2014. I had done a master's in cultural anthropology before that, that I think really got me thinking about displacement and race and colonialism. And so I was thinking about these things, but I was also living in San Francisco and, you know, witnessed to a lot of my friends and community members being displaced. I was also going back and forth to Romania during this time. I was also witnessing a lot of people getting displaced in actually in both places, in both Romania and in the Bay Area. The emphasis is particular to Cluj, Napoca, Romania. These really uh, visceral aspirations of becoming Silicon Valley transformed the neighborhood while displacement and evictions were taking place, you know, rampantly um, in very racialized and classed ways. And I was part of this group, Eviction Free San Francisco. It was a direct action mutual aid group. We would hold meetings every two weeks and anybody could go who was being evicted or having trouble with our landlords. And we just began to witness this trend, or two trends. One was that tenants were being 
displaced and replaced by people working in the tech industry. But then too, tenants didn't know who their landlords actually were. And it was really that, or both of those that I think that animated the mapping project. One goal was to produce data and information that tenants could use in, in forging direct action campaigns against landlords and also forging multi-building campaigns with other tenants being evicted that were part of the same real estate network. But also because we just saw, I think, techno-capitalist logics really take over the very notion of technology itself, we were interested in other ways to use technology or anti-capitalist features. Yeah, I think it was really those two goals all at once that animated me and a few other housing organizers to start the anti-eviction mapping project. I never imagined it would become what it is today. We have, as you know, because you're a part of it, um, many volunteers in three different chapters, including the Bay Area, but also New York and Los Angeles. And it's, you know, very decentralized and it's really just driven by the, the work of so many volunteers committed to housing justice who bring all sorts of skills and, and knowledge and experiences with them. But in the beginning, we thought we were just going to make a couple maps and do some basic data analysis, and that would be it. It's grown a lot, and that's just because of everybody who's, who's joined it. Yeah, for our listeners, the Anti-Eviction Mag Project is a digital cartography and tenant organizing collective. And at least from my own perspective, it's kind of my most valuable, kind of most, most valuable learning space, I would say. Yeah, it's been an honor working with Erin. Likewise, likewise. And really, the work that we been doing the Victor book, which is this tool that you've been working on, <laughs> that we've been working on for a couple of years. Um, but it's a lookup tool, so you can look up a shell company, like an investment company, um, or an address and learn about the sort of corporate network, uh, property ownership and corporate ownership and any eviction histories that have taken place related to the network. That tool, even though we're still working on it now, um, that was sort of a mapping project intended to do right away when we formed, and it's just taken us until now, thanks to people like you to actually build it and make it a reality. Um, yeah. um, a key component of the anti-eviction mapping project is maps. Can you talk a little bit about your work with mapping and why you chose this orientation for the project and tenant organizing around maps and geography? Sure. Um, to be honest, I didn't know much about maps when we started the project. It was really this you know, concept of making eviction data visible in a way that tenants and tenant organizers could use. And it just made sense to make a map. And because evictions were happening, we didn't know where they were happening across the city. We maybe just knew what was happening on our street or, you know, amongst our community, our communities. Um, but so, yeah, maps just really lent themselves well to the initial goal of the project of helping tenant organizers door knock, for instance, build solidarities with other tenants being evicted by the same landlord. Since the project began in 2013, I've learned much more about maps and history and also countermapping. Yeah, we really are situated within this tradition of countermapping in many ways, which is a tradition that uh, was coined by Nancy Peloso in, in 1995, referencing indigenous practices of using spatial data and spatial representations to sort of fight colonial uh, topographies. But, you know, even before the term was coined, these practices have existed for centuries and centuries. We didn't know about any of this when we began. But, you know, since then, this kind of movement of counter-mapping or counter-cartography, critical cartography has grown a lot to um, often describe appropriating corporate or government tools in order to create sort of emancipatory spatial futures. But it also might mean creating spatial representations that are like illegible to you know, colonial 
or um, or even capitalists or, or Google like, uh, understandings of space. So you know, some people might consider counter cartography to only exist if we're not sort of referencing um, normative uh, geo coordinates using GPS data, which is of course a Cold War uh, invention. Um, yeah, we're we're often you know always toying with this idea of breaking free from corporate dependencies and a lot of the maps that we we make. And yet, because we are um, for the most part all volunteers with limited time, and we only have the skills that we have, and we're always trying to develop more skills. But sometimes using completely um, you know free and open source technologies mean that only a few people in the project know how to access them or, or build from them. So there's always this idea of using tools and technologies that um, everybody in the project can use. And then also, uh, yeah, well, so while the Evictor book project, we're using kind of a very much normative understanding of spatial data and web map making, um, even if it's for anti-capitalist futures, we have other projects where we create murals or um, we have an atlas that came out recently. And, you know, the very last... Um, map in the atlas is one designed by fourth and fifth graders who kind of reimagine the San Francisco that they want to live in and um, places that would feel exciting and safe and generative um, for their futures. And, you know, so that sort of map doesn't abide by the sort of latitudinal and longitudinal um, coordinates that uh, we might be referencing in our maps in a Victor book. So lots of different mapping. Thank you so much, Erin. I think those were all the questions I had today, but thank you so much for coming in and for talking to us about property and technology. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks for being part of the mapping project too. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. The High Theory in STEM series is orchestrated, recorded, and edited by Julia Irian Martins, Nathan Kim, Saronic Bosu, and Kim Adams. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. Mm-hmm.